0: Influencers for Good is a new ethical news platform dedicated to featuring incredible people doing incredible things for the planet according to five thematic pillars – people, planet, products, purpose, ideas and solutions. It is time to bring followers to what matters most – our planet and the good people working hard to protect it. A lot of the people and ideas featured on our platform and podcast don't have millions of followers, but they should – The problem is that they're too busy working really hard, and we are here to give them a lift up with your help. So don't forget to follow, subscribe, and share when you like our work. Hello, and welcome back to Influencers for Good. I'm your host, Natasha, and today I have a very special guest here with me all the way from Nigeria, my dear friend, Solape Akimpilo. Hi, Solape. How are you? Hi, Natasha. I'm doing well. Are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining um, in this special episode. I am really thrilled to discuss with you um, a bunch of things, actually, because you you are a woman of many talents. But actually, before we start and we dive into it, since Influences for Good is really about people that go the extra mile, that have some sort of life purpose, that do things greater than themselves, not just for financial returns. And I remember when I met you, I was really struck by... A story about your name. So you, you your name is Solape, but your actual full name is Homo Solape. Do you mind telling us the story of the meaning of it, please? <sighs>
1: Thank you so much, Natasha. Hello, everyone. Um, Oh, my. I'm all emotional now about my name. My name is generally, I'm generally called Sholakwe Akinpelu. But my full name, my full first name is Omo Sholakwe. It is a Yoruba name from southwest Nigeria. And what it means is that um, it's loosely translated as Um, This child makes me complete. In this one, I feel totally complete. All of my quests is complete in this child. So completeness is the resonating word in my name. Going full circle, achieving completeness.
0: Well, it gave me goosebumps the first time you told me, and it's giving it to me again because name is identity, right? So if we have to go with the true meanings of our names and that establish our identity, that sense of completeness—do you think is has given you some extra umph into the pursuit of all your um, amazing ventures, or or has that come maybe to realization much later in life?
1: Absolutely. Um... I must say that I have a great knack for solving really, really complicated um, problems. Um, I get bored easily with monotonous, expected. I usually thrive where it's so complicated, where it needs a lot of arrangement, where it needs to be solved for and where, you know, we need to make it come around full circle, you know, to serve people, to serve humanity. So I must say that uh, I live and breathe my name on That's
0: amazing. So you kind of thrive in chaos. So give us a little bit of an intro. So who are you? What do you do? Um, And how do you get there? Because I'm guessing your current ventures were not the starting point. You have a little bit of a I mean, same field background, but you studied somewhere else and then there was like a moment where you went, ha-ha, no, nah, got to do something bigger. So give us a yes, story.
1: Yes, um, it dates back to my childhood where we all nursed different ambitions at different times. Uh, the first ambition I noticed as a child was journalism. I wanted to be a journalist, partly. Fast forward into high school, I decided to be a lawyer instead because i felt like it was more elevating you know it would just be very nice to be a lawyer and um in the african or my nigerian setup a lot of our parents then the baby boomers they only recognized three professions you're either a doctor a lawyer or an engineer i mean it was a talk of you know it's 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 it's, it's um a flex if you have you know, any of those professions as um, one that your child is. But then when I got into university, um, I still wanted to study law, but then I couldn't get a space there. So I got um, to study mass communications. And from then on, um, I decided to go into public relations I must tell you that my first love while studying mass communication was advertising because it was creative. It was alluring to me and, you know, um, it was fun. But then I was very self-righteous. I said, advertisers are liars. I don't want to practice advertising because basically they tell you a product does what it exactly doesn't do, right? (laughs) So I said, I would rather do public relations. And then out of school, I came out and saw an adver- advert for people who could write. I didn't know what the role was. And that was how I just put up for it and realized that it was an audition for an advertising um, academy. And that was how I landed in an advertising academy without you know, knowing what it was for. I came out of the advertising academy as the best student, landed my first major job. An advertising agency, and that was it. That was how I accidentally, you know, landed in advertising, which I loved initially. Um, And then I was into copywriting and strategy. The first agency I worked with, right, um, had briefs of financial institutions so a lot of the other advertising agencies looked at us in a funny way like oh these are the boring guys with the boring brands because everyone considered financial institutions you know quite boring and to be honest there's a limit to how you can do or say around financial institutions compared to you know advertising for a game advertising for a box of cereal advertising for you know an event it was much more fun, but then what I did was it made me really really curious about why people even generally consider financial brands boring right People don't talk with their ban about their banks or their insurance firm you know with joy or with excitement right So I started digging deeper and wrote one of the best campaigns for Nigerian banks as I then. And as I dug deeper, I realized again that there were even deeper issues in financial services itself. That is, a lot of women were not adopting financial services. You know, you take a brief, what you do is running demographics and all of that. And it was from there, um, I crossed to what they call the client side of marketing. And he rose to become head of marketing of one of the top five investment conglomerates in Nigeria, West Africa, called Meristem, where I was able to build and push to market a lot of interesting products across stockbroking, wealth management, asset management, and finance generally. And so you see that it was, look at that, it was you know different i was at different places places i was meant to be either accidentally or by choice because of where i am today which is harvest
0: how did harvest how did the transition happen so you were working delivering financial products using your smarts related to all the years in advertising what made you quit and go mm, you know what let me start something extremely complex that has a very low chances of succeeding. If I do succeed, it's amazing, but still so complex. And I know you love difficult stuff. You said that, but what was the kick?
1: Yeah. So the kick for me was, hey, I remember initially while as head of marketing at the investment firm, what I wanted to do, I wasn't even considering setting labs for starting Harvest. I kept pushing for us having products that cater to women, products with genderless. I moved to a lot of my, you know, um, mentioned to the the management. Really, really amazing people, but they did not see the need, right? And what I heard at every corner was, hey, you know what? Someone tried doing this and it failed. Women exactly are not ready to make money. And when you concentrate so much on women, you know, It fails. There's no need for this. A lot of women do not have okay, money. Let, let,
0: let's, let me stop you there. Let's say that like, slowly. Women are not ready yet to make money. That was the selling pitch. Yeah.
1: Women are ready to make money. Women do not have money. Um, women spend their husbands money. Um, and in, in, in fact, Natasha, there were data that backed this. To say, truly, women drive consumerism. Most consumer purchases, 70% are largely women. But Mm -hmm, in many cases, too, these women were swiping other people's cards. Right? So, when you you...
0: Because women buy for the households. They don't buy just for themselves. They buy for the entire family and the extended family. So, they are the spenders.
1: Yeah, they buy for the household, but maybe, you know, in some cases, the the, the card is um, the man's card. Yeah. So, you know, while I saw that, it made me even more interested in the problem to say, wait a minute. Firstly... I know that women have money because I have money. I've always been very mindful about my finance from day one. Secondly, if we have the bulk of women and they do not have money in their hands, that means they do not have power. So how can we redistribute capital and make sure that we put more money in more women's hands? So either ways... For the women who have the money and the women who do not have, I'm going to go out there and ensure that we redistribute capital and help women with some with money to make more and help women who do not have to start having. And that's the story of Hervest.
0: So give us the pitch. What is Harvest and what does it do specifically?
1: Hervest basically... Is an inclusive fintech for women. Inclusive in what way? See, so it's inclusive because financial institutions, particularly in emerging markets, do not largely serve some sects of the society. By that, I mean people who do not have financial history. People who, you know, uh, probably cannot read, cannot write, are not educated. They live in rural areas. You Set up an insurance company, for instance, you want to make money. The first place you head to is you go to the corporates. You go to the people that can move the numbers for you, right? And now, because typically, like I always say, the face of African poverty is the face, look at it. Look at the intervention funds and all of that. What, what comes to mind when you think about it? An African yeah, woman at times with a child on her back in tattered clothes. It's usually an African woman. What Hevers does is to say that if we can improve quality access and inclusion to these women, to financial services as savings, as investment, as credit, we would then have been able to, and that's where the inclusive comes in. Strongly inclusive.
0: are these women that are like financially completely invisible, like they don't have a bank account whatsoever, they can't bank in any lowest form of banking, whether it's through a mobile phone, like they're completely non existent. These are the women you serve. And you bring them Those on are the women. to Yeah. And how how do you bring them on board into um with your products i mean i imagine it's a massive um, leap for someone that like you said is probably uneducated um, maybe can't read or write um how do you bring that and especially fruit tech in rural area and just to be clear her vest only serves at the moment or i don't know if there are different plans but focused mostly in nigeria correct
1: at the moment we are focused um on the Nigerian markets, because it's a huge market. So we're looking at deepening before expanding um, to other parts of the continent.
0: Tell us, how, how do you get them started? How does that work?
1: Okay, so simply put, um First off, our model is a peer-to-peer one. Recall that coming to the market, we said that we want to work with the women who have, and allies in many cases now, and see how we can redistribute their capital to women who do not have. And that way, we can get the people who have from ground one to two, and the ones who do not have from ground zero to one. So now, going back to the demand side, which we started with the smallholder female farmers in Nigeria, because typically, you know, a lot of people in rural areas are agrarian. So it's easy for us to work with those female farmers in groups. And that's to answer your question. We worked with them in groups, in collectives of women, groups of, you know, female farmers.
0: So you need to be so, in like a circle of trust. Exactly. A human, a human circle of trust, not a tech, not a financial, like a natural person-to-person no. circle of trust.
1: Absolutely. That's it. Building that circle of trust person to person and then bringing them up gradually. For instance, in May, we launched our USSD product. A lot of them do not have smartphones. A lot of them do not have internet connectivity in their areas. But then they have push phones. They have feature phones where they can simply dial a code and... In their local language, in their local dialect, they can open a bank account, they can get um, curriculum, they can get um, um, lined up curriculum around financial literacy, especially how credit works, and even best practices for um, the value chain that we support, which is rice, Maze and soccer at the moment.
0: Wow. When when did it start? When did this work start? In which year?
1: Yeah, we started twenty twenty one, late twenty twenty actually, but you know, really kicked off twenty twenty one.
0: Just literally in in the midst of uh, global chaos. pandemic. So it, yeah, it couldn't have been <laughs> a, an easier way to start something already so complex. But I'm looking at your website and I'm reading, um, you know that. Uh, Hawa, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Kwaara state government collaborates with Harvest on gender finance project for 1,000 women farmers. So, what is the size of the impact so far?
1: Well, so far we have about 10,000 women farmers, and who trust not, me,
0: who were not banking before, and now they are financially visible. Yes, in
1: actual fact, some of them, you know, probably had bank accounts maybe because they have a daughter or a mm-hmm. son in the city who would send them money. But in terms of them being able to access credit from such, they are most of the time they are not um they do not meet the criteria, they do not even stand a chance to get credit to actually help them. So what we are doing is for the ones that are totally excluded, you know, we start with them in getting them, um, you know, um, economic footprints, digital economic, digital economic footprints. And for ones who had before, which is some some access, what we do is that we give them greater access and include them to uptake credit that's required to put more money in their pockets.
0: So, I mean, obviously, the work you're doing, it's incredibly fundamental and important. As We know that, I mean, we know, a lot of people don't know, but we know that it's crucial to advance development community um, to empower women and to make women financially empowered because they will then, as a consequence, leave the entire community themselves. Um, but I'm assuming that that conversation is probably a very difficult one to have in your current areas, how is that going down? What are your current struggles as you try to advance the importance of kind of this new approach or mental shift even?
1: Um, it's it's huge, right, especially because um, a lot of organizations, we are a social enterprise for instance, you know, and so that means that we are You know, uh, we are not a not-for-profit, but at the same time, we are big on, you know, moving the needle and becoming sustainable at uh, at the same time. So, but a lot of enterprises that you see around here are largely commercial. And so, it's been a struggle securing funding to back our operations, um, to deepen and expand. For instance, in our projections, we are projected that by now we would have reached over 500,000 um, smallholder female farmers. Um, but at the moment, <laughs> because you know, backing, operationalizing, and ensuring that the funds extended to these women come back actually requires you know a lot of monitoring, and evaluation support which in itself requires you know some funding so funding is a critical you know challenge in our operations and we are constantly you know it's about the toughest part of running the business essentially
0: because i guess it, i mean you're out in the field a lot if you have to build this one-on-one peer circle of trust, I'm assuming that your team spends, and yourself, you spend a lot of time out in the field, continuously educating, talking, advocating, discussing, trying to change minds, or how does that work?
1: That's it. So typically we, for instance, you see, um, we saw Kwara State earlier on. Um, we are in two communities in Kwara State, um, those areas are called um Umaro and Adabata. They are towns that are about two to three hours depending on the type of car you travel with from the main town. Right? And the main town itself is about six hours drive from Lagos where, you know, you have our HQ. Exactly. Mm. So our job is um actually you know physically, emotionally and um financially demanding. Exactly. <laughs> right. I know I know people. those
0: roads is it's not like the highway. It's not it like six it hours isn't. on an, on a highway. It's six hours on a terrain where you don't know where you're gonna find if it rains exactly the season, if, and then you do an animal crossing.
1: Right, then you do another 2.5 hours and then you're there engaging women whose husbands in some cases feel like, okay, um, are they going to teach you to leave me? What are they about? Some men come to their, with their women to the farm because they're curious. Um, some do not want them to accept the loans. You know, and then you are, we're constantly, you know, advocating. It's a tough job which is why we are constantly looking at how we can also write on technology to, you know, bridge some of this, which is one of the reasons why we built the U.S.S. in the first place. But it's a tough job, but I strongly believe that we are the right people to do this.
0: So, um, obviously, if you need to be reliant on technology, but you were saying that a lot of these women are not um, empowered with uh, mobiles, so how? What, what are what kind of ways do you have to to bridge that gap? Is it like looking at initiatives to give them mobiles to be able to bank and connect and network and be in touch? Or what kind of solutions are you looking at?
1: There are tons of solutions. You just mentioned one of them, giving them mobiles. Um, some of them include giving them market access because you found a female farmer, for instance, Um, after the season, after a big harvest, the woman needs to sell those products somewhere competitively. And so some of the things that we've done is to, you know, um, go into partnerships with big corporates where these women can competitively, you know, sell their produce to compared to, you know, having to take it to the market gate Suffering a lot of post-harvest losses. Again, in aggregating, volume is critical. Volume is key, and what that means is that when we have the strength of numbers, we are able to, you know, negotiate. These women are able to negotiate um, for the the for greater prices and competitive prices for their produce. So. In season, out of season, we need funds to back, you know, the actual act of farm production um, and the operations, monitoring and evaluation, advocacy and the many things um, to ensure that these women are constantly motivated and that they are able to not just generate income for themselves, but for their households and for their immediate communities. Because, again, evidently, whatever a woman earns, we've seen it with these women, whatever they earn, in any way, 90% more than of it goes back to their homes. So, at the end of the day, it's a nation-building work through a woman.
0: What has been the success story from launch till date, or the biggest shift that you've seen in terms of their acceptance of what you're trying to do? Do you have... Anything that it's like a goosebump story or a moment of, yeah, now I know we're doing something right and we need to keep going because, see, that's what happened, that you can share with us?
1: Well, I recall when we, you know, started, and I'll share some videos with you after the conver- this conversation. Um, there's a particular community we went into, and these women had been there as a group for over seven years, seven years. And they said they'd never had, you know, uh, the luxury of getting funded, getting a loan, you know, to go to the field. So they've largely been limited to uh, subsistence farming, where they do just about a plot. Um, They cultivate just about a plot. And, you know, the first, Season we worked with them, each woman was aggregating about an income of um, converting it to USD now of about two fifty USD, you know, and it was it was you know mind was mind shifting for a lot of them, and that's why you know you see them they keep coming back they tell their friends and. Yes, I had said that we have impacted over ten thousand. On the on, on, on the wait list we actually have about about seventy to eighty thousand women who we do not have the capacity to fund So yeah.
0: So so what is the growth vision for this? So if you had, you know, influences for good aims to be like a, a lift up place for People like you, they're doing these incredible initiatives, ventures, social enterprises, and they need some help and support, and who knows who's listening. If you have a big dream, ask, what is it that you need right now to complete your vision, grow a little bit more? Um, The floor is yours.
1: Yes, totally, because the vision, our mission is to improve women's lives by giving them greater access to and use of financial services. Um, today, it is credit. Insurance is critical to these women because you realize that most of the time um, they have you know, medical emergencies and it's just one incident away from you know, taking them back into zero level of poverty. Absolutely. The plan is to be able to extend to not just male farmers now, but to low-income women communities as many as we can across the continent, quality and improved access to financial services. In order to do this, we need funding. We need patient capital as it is, equity, um, intervention funds, and a whole lot to extensively do this and replicate it across the continent.
0: So for the people that are listening that don't know don't know what patient capital is. Do you want to just give a little uh, yes. explainer? Well,
1: patient capital, uh, you know, capital that um, if it is to be returned, you know, you have extended amount of time to say, okay, about seven, eight years, right? In some cases, they are no interest loans. Uh, in some cases, they are grants. What I always say is that yes, um, we are open to all forms of this funding in grants, in convertibles, in loans, whatever moves the needle for us as an organization. And that is when we are not and will not operate, you know, as, a not, as an NGO or, you know, a not-for-profit where, but because we want to be sustainable and we want mm-hmm. this to outlast, you know, all of us um, and make the solutions scalable across the needed communities in Africa.
0: How much do you need? what do you need to serve those 70 80,000 women that currently you're not able to even look at because of lack of funds what's the equivalent of that in funding to be able to support them it's a
1: going concern natasha um at the moment if we project the numbers 70 80,000 are people that are aware about harvest we've not even done any active marketing for instance you know otherwise we'll be talking about hundreds of thousands of numbers that we need to impact um, at the moment, we have a 2 million US dollar fundraise, right? Um, and that is to help us save um, an additional 100,000, that is to back the operations. But again, you know, in terms of the broad capital required, the 2 million is for the operations, but then we need funds that can be matched to the women themselves. So in terms of that, we'll be talking about nothing less than about 10 million USD altogether to take us from ground zero to one and also become sustainable.
0: 10 million in patient capital or grants or funds available to support this project. It's totally doable. Totally. So you've taken, I'm always in awe of the stuff you do because working with communities is really hard. It is. You're not just trying to solve a problem that is very practical, that in the West it would be, oh, that's very easy, here's a phone, go open an account to try and figure that out yourself. You'll have to go there and you're up against social norms, um, families, men, patriarchy, old school thinking that don't particularly love the idea of women having money because then they can make their own decision without consulting anyone. Yeah. And I suppose that's a threat in a lot of economies. Yeah. That's why the status quo pleases everyone. And I think that it's with that in mind, you went off and wrote an amazing book, Stripped, An African Woman's Guide to Building Generational Wealth, um, which I will put a link on the blog. Uh, It's available on Amazon. And uh, it's a very important book because I think that one thing that you do, you talk about this need to for women, for African women to understand the importance of finance to understand and take spending very seriously, to know who they are in their financial journey so that they can change the status quo for something that serves them better. And um, I was looking at the website. I I found that was really cute, that uh, personality test to find out what kind of spender are you. Yeah. I couldn't get to the end of that because I'm not a black African woman and I couldn't understand all the social cues and all the songs that you referenced. <laughs> so I'm gonna, you're going to have to take me through that separately. That was really funny. Um, but back to the book, what I thought it was uh, uh, is very nice um, on uh, on the part of wealth creation and growth, you talk about set the right financial goals. And um, if I may re- read from it a little paragraph, it says, wherever you're now, you are going to build a path to your wealthy future with bricks of patient deliberation, with the key word being patient. You're going to need patience in a lot of large doses to achieve your financial goals. Now you have a picture of your ideal lifestyle in mind. You need to ask yourself a few specific questions to define what that ideal life is and what it would cost you. So I've outlined a few for you. And again, write this question in your notebook and answer them. And so there's a bunch of questions and a, a, a list of sort of. Um, Commitments that one should make to themselves in terms of importance. So the questions are, how would I prefer to live every day? How much would I need to set up my preferred life, lifestyle? What changes can I make today to help me get there faster? And where is my life out of balance? And then there is this beautiful list that I thought, rarely in a book about finance for men, <laughs> you would find this. Do not limit yourself to this list. You have values that are not listed here. Do add them to your notebook. So you're basically asking to write down a maximum of 10 values that identify yourself and what you do. And we have altruism, appreciation, attentiveness, authenticity, charity, commitment. What have these things got to do with financial goals? And why do you feel so important to have this sort of self-check to come to terms with what you want to do with your financial journey?
1: Well, you know, um firstly, I must say that because I have had a few people say, "Oh, why is the book for African women? I have had non African women read the book, i mean it's it's um cut across, but it's largely situated in the would i say hand me down knowledge that has been passed to a lot of African women, and that is you know what." Sit pretty, go to school, become a good wife, become a good girl, yeah. be taken care of, exactly. As a matter of fact, it's even a slang, you know, in uh, Nigeria here, on the internet, you see people say, you know what, I just want to be taken care of. And it isn't a bad idea to be taken care of, but then... Of course not. Exactly. (laughs) But then... It's um, when, when you are totally, totally dependent on another force, on another human to take care of you, then um, that's you endangering yourself. And so that's one of the reasons why I authored the book, which is in three parts, to help women know how to make money, how to grow the money, and how to transfer to the next generation, because transfer is critical. And in doing this, there are some attendance values that accompanies such feats. I also realized in my profession and in working with women that it becomes so, so complicated when it comes to talking about finance. So you just start conversations and start talking about annuity, mutual funds, equity, you know, and then you, you lose them so fast. But behavioral finance as proven to be very effective with a lot of women, with a lot of African women. And that's why you see the approaches of looking at personal values and aligning such. For instance, um, you realize that some people want to invest their money in, I mean, where a- alongside their personal values. So things that support maybe um, the environment, social values alongside ESG and realize that that brings you a lot of joy, right? So that's why the book itself is integrated in a behavioral perspective and it has proven so successful because people say, oh, you know what, I usually get bored when I read finance books, but this is the first time I'm reading when I'm getting it and it becomes practical that I can actually build wealth. From where I stand without compromising my values.
0: That's really amazing. And I mean, I read the book, I, a lot of it makes incredible sense. And, and, um, and I, I see how important it is, as you're saying, women get together, they don't talk about finance, mm, they talk about other stuff. And it should become more of the norm to also be able to talk about, hey, what are you doing with your money? Are you saving? What are you saving? What are you doing? Hey, let me share what I've just done, the work for me, or let me share what I've just done and was a total failure. Do you have tips? Do you do something differently? Men do that all the time. Women don't. And yes, it's a cultural thing. And uh, and, and it's not just a cultural thing of Africa. This is a cultural thing across the board. Conversations about enhancing um, um, the ability of women to engage in financial, not just conversations, but literally trading is, uh, is a popular topic everywhere because that creates the inclusion. Finance means power. Power means being able to decide and choose. Um, and that determines a lot of the inclusion because you need to sit at the table first. But there are some dynamics that have come up from reading the book that I wasn't familiar with. And then I realized, for talking to you, how deeply damaging they are towards this sprint that you need them to make to, to advance the, the learning into take ownership of their finance. And that's what you've called in the book, the black tax. Yes. Can you just tell us what is it and what does it mean? And how is this affecting the progress of uh, women and, and societies in, in finance in Africa?
1: Yes, absolutely. Recently, I was talking to a group of women and I was discussing calculating your net worth to say it's simply you um, netting off your liabilities from your assets and then your liabilities mostly, especially in the West, when you're looking at your liabilities, you are considering active loans. And when you're looking at your assets, you're looking at, um, you know, cash, um, near cash assets, your fully paid real estate, for instance, um, and all of that. And I told them that when you count your liabilities, make sure that you consider black tax. And a lot of them said, "Oh, no wonder when they calculate their net worth, they don't put that into consideration." And black tax, in essence, is the—it's almost institutionalized, except that it isn't institutionalized. <laughs> but it is the funds, the money that gets remitted back to parents extended families, you know, that is then causing a grandmother, you know, and all of that. And it is, you know, um, in so many cases, um, regular, in some cases comes with a high level of entitlement, you know, um, from extended family, because a lot of us as well um, in Africa are beneficiaries of this. So you have an uncle, you know, fully sending, um, a niece or a nephew somewhere, you know, through education up to, you know, tertiary. And then you just realize that you're meant to do the same or pay it forward. It's communal in a way. It's, um, it's, it's not strange to us. But if not well managed, it is one that can quickly get you you know, down the dark hole of not being able to be um, sustainable. And then, you know, it it becomes a cycle that's toxic and keep, you know, uh, extending it from one generation to another.
0: Because I guess socially, socially you look at as bad if you don't do that, like you're not supportive of your family or you're not, is there like a stigma if you don't subscribe to do that? Um, Is there pressure from that side? You get alienated.
1: There is pressure, Natasha. Yeah, there, there, is, there is there is pressure when you do not do it. And you find it strange that you have some people who start paying for black tax as soon as they are in tertiary institutions too. It comes with some pressure that, um, you know, um, in some cases, if you turn it around positively, it makes you more driven, more ambitious because you have a large, you know, um, you have this black tax just stacking up right after you, right? So um, it it comes with some pressure.
0: Is it like a percentage? Is it like is you know you call it a black tax because it's like a natural percentage, or is just an indicative amount that someone has an expectation?
1: It's just an indicative amount. I think the 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 phrase itself started from South Africa, you know, to yeah to express what it is. It's not exactly, uh, it's not it's not formalized, it's not a particular amount. It's just as simple as, oh, your grandmother needs a surgery or grandma needs to do uh, a 70th birthday, for instance, and this is the amount required. And, you know, you are expected to bring this percent of this, this percent of this, that percent of that. Or some person just calling you to say, oh, I have to, I have an emergency. It could be health, it could be something. And you are binded, you know, to actually help at that time.
0: And everybody has to chip in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this, do you think that this is something that is um, sort of stopping or deterring the rural women from engaging into making money? Because then they feel like they're not really making it for themselves and they see it maybe as an extra effort. Um, that that would necessarily add to their empowerment. Or the not? black
1: tax exactly doesn't affect just the the, the rural women. Um, as a matter of fact, you know from my observation, it affects people who are you know um, perceived to have some um, higher level of affluence or influence or you know wealth in this society. But um, because it is, like I said, it is ingrained in the culture. Even a rural woman who is struggling is still, you know, being asked by um, an uncle's wife and a, a cousin somewhere, you know, for for um, some funds for whatever reason it is. Another one I made up, which I also published alongside my book, is what I call Adada dad tax. Ada is a name for the first daughter, you know, um, in the eastern part of the country, um, Igbo's generally. And um, you realize that the pressure on first daughters usually is a lot from an emotional perspective and a financial perspective as well. Um, While they are younger, they are the ones who have to spend their time looking after younger ones um when they are um uh, at the the, uh, their mid-career also their parents are aging and um here you have parents probably living with them and then they are there again emotionally and financially catering you know to aging parents this in itself puts a lot of pressure you know on their finances on their time which you know we also know that time is money if you don't have enough time to convert into value, value into money, it limits your goals, limits, you know, how much you can create wealth. So these are some challenges that we just need to be well aware of, just so we cannot exactly discard them. Right. But then it guides us yeah. and makes us, you know, what you are aware of, you can better manage. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So stripped is the first step. You've written the book. What's next? Will you start doing some educational videos, tools, podcasts to extend the, the lessons from the book? Is that in the plan? Um, how are you looking to make more impact through that part?
1: You know, I'm actually um, humbled and honoured at the same time to see the acceptance of Street and African Women's Guide to Building Generational Wealth across the continent um, and even globally. You know, this is the last time I was in Marrakesh, Morocco uh, for an event and I saw Street be read by a portuguese lady and it was beautifully recommended by my amazing italian friend (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) so you know it's it's amazing you know from south africa you know on amazon i get see sales from south africa canada different parts of the continent and it's beautiful to see and you know so we're looking at how we can take the gospel of this you know um yes into other forms of of, yeah, of narrative
0: that's amazing shalape thank you so much for being with us today i know you need to run and our time is almost up i just want to ask the last last question which is um What's next now, short term? What do you want to see happening? In the next six months, what's your big achievement that you need to hit? Um, how can anybody help you?
1: Natasha, we have over 100 million women in Nigeria alone. About 98% wow. of those women have never had access to credit before. That's about 98 million women what next is how we can lift these barriers, institutional, systemic, cultural, how we can use financial literacy tools, interventions to create greater access for these women to access the financial services they require to live better, to live a wholesome life, take it back home, to their children yeah and better and build stronger communities and economies that's the plan that's what's next that's why i wake up every day and say okay so what do we do today to move the needle faster
0: you you definitely got yourself a goal greater than yourself and for many many decades to come so you're gonna be busy 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 and <sighs> i hope that, to have you back on influences for good in a few more months with some amazing news of progress and whatever so. we can do, let us know. And uh, I certainly hope to come and be able to visit and see on the ground all this beautiful work that you're doing with these women and communities. I can't wait. Come, 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 come. Nigeria is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Shalape. <laughs> Thank you, Natasha. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Influences for Good podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. If so, don't forget to like and subscribe. Also check our news platform influences for Good. Blog, for more content about our guests or to collaborate with us.